Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics, as we do every other week. And rough they are. The war in Ukraine touches all of us as we watch in horror as war returns to Europe because of the rages and rants of an authoritarian leader. We've seen this picture before. And while we all want to talk about it, there are too many twists and turns left in this crisis. We'll cover Ukraine without a doubt in our next episode when we can do a better job of analyzing what's going on. And in true Altamar fashion, the global implications of it. So do not miss the next episode. And I'm Peter Schechter. So today we're going to look at another world-shaking event that occurred a hundred years ago, an event that changed the face of the Middle East. Egypt celebrated 100 years of independence from Britain's colonial rule on February 28th. Egypt's revolt from Britain occurred decades before any other African or Asian country managed to throw off the yoke of British, French, Belgian, German colonial power. And for years, this act of revolution propelled Egypt to a position of regional and global policy leadership. You can just think back on how Egypt led the thinking on so many things, whether you liked the thinking or you didn't, from its founding role as a founder of the non-aligned movement to being the birthplace of pan-Arabism, to, of course, becoming the first country to make peace with Israel. And yet today, the 100 million person country, the most populous Arab country in the region, has lost influence and pull. What happened to Egypt? We'll be joined by my great friend, the brilliant academic and former Egyptian diplomat, Karim Hagag, and we'll tap into his deep knowledge and years of experience in the region and in the country. Yes, Peter, Egypt has been the geopolitical cornerstone in the Middle East and a very influential regional voice for centuries. Its army is among the strongest in the region, and its influence radiates both towards North Africa as well as towards the Middle East. And Egypt's relations with the U.S. have been strategic and strong, obviously with clear security undertones, boosted by huge foreign aid packages. Considered by the U.S. and by most as too big to fail, today we're asking ourselves why Egypt isn't a bigger success story. Mooney, I think your question has two answers. And the first answer is about the political economy. The country is an authoritarian state, and the government has the final say on absolutely everything, anything having to do with the state and anything having to do with economics. And that applies especially to the army, the strongest army in both the Middle East and North Africa, except for Israel's. And it's the army that now owns large parts of the economy. And there have been some positive economic reforms of late, but the private sector is so hamstrung and so constrained at every turn that it's very hard to imagine a wide-scale, attractive investment program in Egypt. And the second answer, Mooney, is the anti-democratic human rights abusing vice in which President Sisi has placed Egypt. The Biden administration has been super vocal against President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. At the beginning of the year, the U.S. withdrew $130 million in military aid to Egypt over human rights concerns, which has undoubtedly harmed relations between Cairo and Washington. And now Egypt is looking elsewhere. And the 2021 trade between Egypt and the Arab countries increased by nearly 20%. And Sisi seems totally unbothered by his cooling relationship with the U.S. 
Yes, Peter. And more recently, President al-Sisi, despite all the criticism, is enjoying some momentum at home and is trying to restore Egypt's strategic relevance in the world. Several decisions coupled with an improving economy are starting to signal attempts of an Egyptian facelift of sorts aimed at restoring its regional and global position. There's new dialogues with Qatar and Turkey. There's cooling toward UAE and Saudi Arabia, new conversations trying to edge into Europe, pointing to a realignment of its whole kind of global pattern of relationships. And Egypt was also the country to call an emergency meeting in the Arab League regarding the worsening situation in Ukraine. You know, this reset is super deliberate. And what's interesting is that it actually may be working. They've got a slogan, Egypt is back. The government is trying to restore its leadership of the past and acknowledging the shifting tides of regional relationships. And one step has been to recover its role as peacemaker in the conflict, and particularly in the conflict in the Israeli-Arab conflict. And its relationship with Israel has been described, at least by Israelis, as, quote, at their best level since 1979 when the peace accords were signed between Israel and Egypt, unquote. Egypt is also reinforcing its traditional friendships with Jordan and Iraq while really focusing on infrastructure deals, trade and investment, and decreasing economic and energy dependence on the Gulf state. So is this enough to balance out the human rights criticism that's coming from Washington? I don't think it's enough for Taya because she wants to walk us through the crackdowns and abuses and censorship of the al-Sisi regime. Hi, I'm Taya Vadovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So youth represents nearly one-third of Egypt's population, and 61% of the country's population are under 30. That's it's crazy. It's a huge amount. So in 2022, the country is hosting also the World Youth Forum, which incidentally was also founded in Egypt. And like many neighboring countries, unemployment is very high with a very fragmented education system. But what I find incredibly frightening is a lack of freedom of opinion in the country, and in particular, the death of Egypt's civil society. And that's really what I want to take a look at today. Following the Arab Spring, many call the youth the Generation Jail. Egypt's youth went from protest to prison very quickly. And the Carnegie Endowment recent study showed this very difficult atmosphere NGOs and other groups operate in, making it nearly impossible for pro-democratic or even simply just pro-freedom groups to organize and to function. So let's take a step back and look at some recent history as the health of civil society is often a good gut check for society as a whole. And despite a really harsh legal framework, a relatively vibrant circle of NGOs emerged in the 1990s and the early 2000s. And between 1993 and 2011, the Egyptian NGO sector more than doubled in size. And following massive popular mobilization that led to Mubarak's resignation in early 2011, many Egyptians expressed hope that Egypt's you know, terrible civil society could finally, you know, have space to flourish, continue to flourish without fear of oppression. And international donors ramped up their funding for democracy and human rights programming, and civil society organizations played a huge, a crucial role in the subsequent sort of transitional phase, chronicling the revolution's progress, highlighting abuses of power, providing legal assistance, and filling the gaps created by the rapid reorganization of state structures. But that all very quickly came to a halt. 
too many of civil society's activities in the post-Arab Spring years became co-opted by the Muslim Brotherhood, in part leading to Sisi's election in 2014. And since then, Egyptian authorities have created new efforts to regulate and to weaken organized civil society, really affecting the youth in the country. First and foremost, of course, is the state's media campaign against civil society, with pro-Sisi outlets claiming that various NGOs were allied with terrorists or working on behalf of foreign powers to divide the country. And what's even worse is that the campaign of enforced disappearance and extrajudicial detention of the suspected dissidents, quote unquote, the students and the activists, and they're often held incommunicado for weeks or for months without legal protection. It's very, very frustrating and very worrying. So we're talking about, you know, hundreds of cases a year. So my take is that while Egypt is working very hard at its newest facelift, the issue is that no society can prosper if its youth is repressed, unemployed, and uninspired. So as always, I want to know what you think. Tweet at Altamar Podcast or use the hashtag TASTake and let me know what you think. There's no doubt that the human rights story in Egypt is nothing but reprehensible, but this is a complex neighborhood. Syria is a failed state of 17.5 million people. Can you imagine what a 100, 100 million person failed state looks like? And some Egyptians actually say that Sisi is doing a good job of turning the country around and improving its economy and increasing its historically important footprint again. There's so much to talk about. So let's welcome our guest, Ambassador Karim Hagag. Karim is a visiting fellow at the Middle East Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also currently a professor at the School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the American University of Cairo. Karim is a career Egyptian diplomat with over 25 years of service in Egypt's diplomatic corps. He's a dear friend, and I want to welcome him really warmly to Altamar. Welcome, Karim. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Moody. Thank you both for having me. Let's begin sort of with a really wide angle focus. Egypt celebrates 100 years of independence. It was one of the first countries outside of the Americas to wrest away from Britain's colonial yoke. And that gave Egypt enormous clout as a leader of nations. And I, I remember the non, its leadership in the non-aligned movement in Pan-Arab, in the Pan-Arab revolution, in Sadat's groundbreaking trips to Jerusalem. I mean, these are big, big things. Where's Egypt today? And I guess the direct question is, has Egypt's role in the region shrunk? Yeah, so a centennial is always a useful milestone to look back, but also to look forward, as, as you mentioned. And this year does mark 100 years since Egypt's independence. And in many ways, that independence was the culmination of a nationalist movement that emerged in the early 19th century, and that took the form of a revolution right, against British occupation that forced Great Britain to grant Egypt its independence in 1922. Right? But of course, 100 years is only the tick of a clock when it comes to a country like Egypt, right? with its history, with its civilization. And in many ways, it was the ability of that national movement to draw upon this civilizational legacy, this historical legacy that enabled Egypt to claim this regional leadership role, as you mentioned. 
And it, it, it's important to note, it wasn't just Egypt's political leadership, you know, all the things you mentioned about the non-aligned movement, pan-Arabism, the diplomatic initiative for peace with Israel under Sadat, but it was also a leadership in terms of culture, in terms of thought leadership. You know, for, for a long time, Egyptian art, Egyptian literature, Egypt's movies, its education were nearly universal in the Arab world. So yes, e Egypt does have a very long legacy of regional leadership. Today, of course, is a different time. The tumultuous change that Egypt went through as a result of the Arab uprisings did take its toll, right? And there is a strong feeling today that Egypt needs to prioritize its domestic development, right? So, so the focus is very much inward on rebuilding Egypt, reconstituting Egypt. But th there's an important point to make here because it would be wrong to describe the sentiment as a kind of Egypt first mentality, meaning it doesn't reflect a desire to focus on Egypt at the expense of the region. Quite the contrary, it's very much focused on getting Egypt's house in order so that it can resume its regional leadership role sometime in the near future, right? to be better able positioned to play the role that it did for the benefit of the region. We want to get into the details of what that means to get its house in order. But, you know, what, one of the things that sort of strikes me, Kareem, is that sort of the leadership of the region has sort of ebbed away from size and, as you say, cultural leadership to money. In, in a way, it's now the Gulf that has become the sort of leader of the Arab world. I, I don't want to be crude, but does money now trump size and history? And what are specifically are the things that you see that need to be done in Egypt and getting the house in order that will return Egypt to a sort of regional leadership? Yeah, yeah. so I, I recall a very interesting book by Farid Zakaria. In, in 2008, he wrote the, the Rise of the Rest. And the main idea was that the story of the 21st century is not one of American decline, but the rise of everyone else. Now, that's kind of analogous to what has occurred in the Arab world over the last 20, 30 years. Yes, you do see a rise in other Arab countries on the regional stage, the, the countries of the Gulf in particular, that do have enormous financial resources that they have used successfully to increase their regional role. I mean, money does afford you a certain sense of leverage, right? But I think the point to be made here is that in today's Middle East, no one country can claim the mantle of leadership. I mean, the region's problems are too complex, they're too entrenched, they're too diverse for any one country to, to take the lead, right? So leadership is increasingly a collective affair, and, and we can get into some of the coalitions that have been formed to address the region's problems, right? But there's a broader point here. Money can buy you leverage. It cannot buy you leadership. I mean, leadership, in my view, is the ability to put forward a vision for how the region can overcome its problems and its divisions and the ability to act on that vision. And this brings us back to the model of leadership that Egypt espoused, you know, leadership of thought, leadership of 
political initiative, right? a model that others can follow in terms of social diversity, cultural diversity. You know, Egypt as the home of the largest Christian community in the Middle East, Cairo as the home of Al-Azhar, the oldest institution of Islamic learning, right? a country able to take the diplomatic initiative. So it was very much a leadership role founded on soft power, immense reservoir of soft power rather than hard power. And I think the region is yearning for that type of leadership, right? There's a sentiment you hear from many in the region that without a strong and engaged Egypt, the region is worse off, not better off. There was a chapter in recent history, the Arab Spring, which was such a traumatic affair, which unleashed the end of Mubarak's regime, brought an elected government allied with the Muslim Brotherhood, and ended in the rule of current President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. The Arab Spring seems to have floundered everywhere, and the last embers are extinguishing in Tunisia. What will be the legacy of the Arab Spring in the region's history? Yeah, I think traumatic is very much the word I would use. Yes, um, you know, the, the Arab Spring developed along different trajectories, right? So you did have the overthrow of regimes in Egypt and Tunisia. But in other countries, the Arab Spring degenerated into vicious civil war, right? And we've seen that in Syria, we've seen it in Libya, we've seen that in Yemen. Now, thankfully, Egypt did not go down that path. I mean, the institutions of the state and the institutions of society were too resilient, you know, and enabled Egypt to avoid the type of collapse you saw in these other countries. Nevertheless, it was a very turbulent time. I mean, you know, for decades, Egypt was known for its remarkable political stability. But from 2011, we went to having three presidents in as many years. And when the Muslim Brotherhood came, there was a real anxiety that Egypt would be turned into a religious state, right? And consequently, the fear that we would actually go down the path of Libya or, or Syria. Today, I think there's a very palpable sense that for the majority of Egyptians, there's a real desire to get back to a sense of normalcy, a sense of stability. You know, the, the sense that there's been too much politics too much activism, and now is the time to rebuild. Now, that said, I don't think that the final word has been written on the Arab Spring. I think the Arab Spring unleashed generational aspirations for change that have yet to be realized. Now, how these forces play out along the region's politics, including in Egypt, over the medium to long term, I think that we've yet to see that, right? Now, this doesn't mean there's necessarily a yearning for another revolution, but there is a yearning for change, and that yearning cannot be suppressed. And I think what you're seeing now across the region is a real effort on the part of leaders to respond to that yearning. You know, what's going on in Saudi Arabia with the reforms being undertaken by Prince Mohammed bin Salman? what President Sisi is trying to do in Egypt, you know, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE, you know, each in their own way, they're driven by a sense that there does need to be real change. So I think the final word on all of this is yet to be written. 
You mentioned Libya. Can you give us an assessment of, of Libya, of course, as a special security threat to Egypt and its neighbors and a challenge to Europe, but also in the progress of countries like Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco? Yeah, so Libya is a very vexing problem for both Egypt and the region, of course. You know, it, it seems to be stuck in a perpetual transition after the overthrow of Gaddafi in 2011, right? And I think, yes, there is a path for Libya to stabilize, but we need to address two key challenges. One, there needs to be a broad-based power-sharing agreement that would gain the consensus of all Libyans. Right? Now, that's been attempted repeatedly over the years, but I think what's missing is that power-sharing has to be accompanied by a societal reconciliation. right? And I think the second priority is to maintain the integrity of the institutions of the Libyan state, you know, the Libyan military, Libya's financial institutions, the institutions of its energy sector. Right? Now, Egypt has been very heavily invested in both of those tracks, right? but it is a very difficult endeavor. Libya is a very complex country, but those two challenges have to be addressed. I think on the other countries that you mentioned, I think it's very interesting because it proves the point that the repercussions of the Arab Spring are still playing out. I mean, in Tunisia, you have a deepening of political polarization between nationalists and Islamists. In Algeria, you have a second wave of the Arab Spring, something that's also playing out in Sudan. In Morocco, you had a very astute monarchy that was able to preempt demands for change early on during the Arab Spring. So in many ways, all of these cases represent different chapters of the story of the Arab Spring that's still being written. What about Africa? Does Egypt have a role to play? It's been at the crosshairs of the Middle East and Africa. What is Egypt's role in its giant army playing as a regional leader beyond the Sahara? Yeah, so there's a sense among Egyptians, politicians, opinion makers, diplomats, that over the last 30 years, Egypt has neglected Africa, right? You know, Egypt was once at the forefront of African issues you know, during the 1950s and the 1960s, supporting directly movements for African liberation, right? Supporting the cause of African development, right? Developing very strong partnerships with governments and peoples across the continent. There's a certain sense that over the last few decades, Egypt has focused much more on the Middle East than Africa. Today, there is a clear desire on the part of the government to renew and strengthen its links with the continent, right? Whether that's in terms of reviving Egypt's development assistance to countries in Africa, its humanitarian relief efforts, You know, during the whole period of COVID, there was a very interesting attempt at vaccine diplomacy and health diplomacy on the part of Egypt with countries in the continent, you know, taking a more active role in solving Africa's problems. You know, one very interesting recent example of this, you know, Egypt will be hosting COP27 this year in Sharm el-Sheikh. And there's been a very clear, consistent message from Egypt's leadership that it is hosting this on behalf of Africa, right? that it, it's going to use this occasion to advocate for African interests and African priorities when it comes to issues of climate change 
and the energy transition to make sure that African interests are safeguarded. Kareem, let's talk a little bit about sort of a sense of a new rapprochement with Israel. I mean, it's certainly after the Abraham Accords, there is a general sense of a, a new rapprochement with Israel. But in particular, Egypt-Israeli cooperation on security issues, but even beyond security issues, seems to be heightened these days. Tell us what is happening in Egypt-Israeli relations. Right. No, you know, Egypt has, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning of this discussion, right, Egypt was the first Arab country to reach out and make peace with Israel. You know, during a time when this was extremely controversial and extremely problematic for the Arab world, you know, Egypt was shut out from the Arab League after its peace treaty with Israel in 1979. So we, we've had a very long and I think maturing relationship with Israel over the years, to the point that we can actually cooperate on issues such as security, such as trade and investment, you know, such as energy. I mean, today, Egypt is now a leading importer of Israeli gas. Egypt sits together with Israel in the East Mediterranean Gas Forum, which was an Egyptian initiative, right? So there are very interesting areas of cooperation. That said, you know, Egypt has never forgotten the Palestinian cause, right? In, in many ways, Egypt's very national identity was shaped by the Palestinian issue. You know, Egypt fought four wars with Israel over the issue of Palestine, right? And so Egypt has, alongside its cooperation with Israel, Egypt continues to advocate for the cause of Israeli-Palestinian peace, most recently with the attempts to institute various ceasefires in the wars between Gaza or Hamas in Israel. And so th this is a very important issue for Egypt, and it still retains its resonance, even though Egypt, as you said, is cooperating more and more with Israel on various issues. Karim, the relationship with the U.S. has always been a very strong one for Egypt. It's been a great recipient of foreign aid, and there's been a, a huge uh, security component to this longstanding relationship. But recently, Washington has placed pressure on Cairo regarding human rights concern, and most recently withdrew $130 million in fundings. What are the relationships between the Biden administration and President Sisi administration right now? Yeah, so Egypt has a very long and deep relationship with the United States, you know, and, and that spans a whole gamut of issues, you know, from regional security to counterterrorism to Israeli-Palestinian peace. You know, it, during the 1990s and the 2000s, every major Israeli-Palestinian agreement was reached because of Egyptian-U.S. cooperation, right? And so this is a very long and mature relationship. And I think over the years that the relationship has matured to the point that we can agree to disagree. Right? Human rights is one of those issues over which we disagree. Right? But I would say that has not affected the overall relationship, which remains quite strong. And just on this issue, I think you know, th there are many advocates in the United States, in Washington in particular, that have sought to leverage U.S. assistance to Egypt and to pressure Egyptian governments on the issue of human rights. I would argue that 
at no time has that actually worked in achieving or furthering the objective of human rights as they see it in Egypt. You know, at the end of the day, issues of human rights, issues of democratization are issues for Egyptians to decide and work through. In other words, these are fundamentally Egyptian issues. When we make them Egyptian-American issues, we not only complicate the relationship between the two countries, but I think we complicate the cause of human rights and democratization in Egypt itself. And speaking of democracy and Egyptians, civil society has quite a history in Egypt. It flourished briefly around the Arab Spring, and now it seems quite dormant. So what's your take on Egyptian youth and civil society's organizations right now? Yeah, so I think that there is a misconception here. I think for many Western audiences, you know, the, the tendency is usually to equate civil society with those organizations involved in human rights, democratization, you know, the organizations that espouse revolutionary activism in the context of the Arab Spring. You know, so looking at civil society through this lens, right? And these groups are very vocal in terms of the restrictions that they do face. You know, some of them, some of these concerns may be legitimate, some may be exaggerated. But I think the general sentiment among many Egyptians, again, is that we've had too much politics, you know, too much activism. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is a small number of organizations that do, in fact, face problems. I mean, there's no denying that, right? But when you look at the breadth and scope of Egyptian society as a whole, I think we're talking about organizations in the tens of thousands that are involved in everything from charity, social services, arts and culture, I mean, urban renewal, education, you know, women's rights groups, you know, on issues of anti-harassment, gender equality, family planning. So the reality is we're actually talking about a civil society that's quite vast, you know, notwithstanding the problems that do exist with respect to a small fraction of civil society that has been involved more in activist-related activity. Karim, our time is closing. I want to end where you had begun, which is to talk a little bit about putting Egypt's house in order. And so let's talk a little bit about the economic reforms. There have been you know, a lot of attempts over the last 20 years to open Egypt's economy to greater competition, greater private sector leadership. Can you just talk a little bit about where Egypt is going and what you think will strengthen its game and sort of overcome some of the internal growth challenges and the equality in the economy that Egypt needs to sort of accelerate towards? Yeah, so economic reform has been a longstanding issue in Egypt, you know, going on for the better part of the last four decades, right? What I think you've seen over the last or five, six years is really bold action on, you know, issues and decisions that were very difficult to take under previous governments, you know, issues of subsidy reform, you know, slashing subsidies, balancing the budget, you know, engaging in very ambitious attempts at infrastructure, urban construction, you know, putting in place the infrastructure for a modern economy. And there's a real sense of urgency, a 
about this. You know, if you look at the scope and the pace of these reform efforts, I think you, you would have to agree or acknowledge that it, a lot has been done. I think the next wave of reforms have to address deep-seated institutional issues, right? So institutions of economic governance, right, in terms of taxation, uh, in terms of regulation, right, to unleash what has historically been a very vibrant private sector in Egypt, right? But I think with the pace and the urgency of change, that is something that we can expect, I think, in the very near term, right, to enable the private sector uh, to assume that role. Karim Hagag, thank you very much for joining us on Altamar today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Peter, this podcast got me thinking, and also the current events around us, how hard democracy is and how it is so difficult to not only obtain, but to maintain. And I think that's the case for Egypt as well. You just hear this over and over again among sort of people in the Middle East that you know, we all respect that there's this dichotomy between stability and democracy that seems to be impossible to bridge. And everybody points to, like, you know, when you took the lid off the pot in Iraq, it exploded. When you took the lid off the pot in Libya, it exploded. And, you know, Egyptians seem determined not to do that. And, I, you know, the question is, is it really so dangerous to allow dissident voices to flourish? I don't know. But I think we're going to leave it at that. And you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for analysis of global trends. See you next time.